Conversations. Hi everyone, thanks for tuning in to Med Conversations. We've got another episode today with Scott. Hey Scott, how are you going? Good thanks, yourself? Not too bad. So you're going to tell us about acute rheumatic fever and rheumatic heart disease? Yep, so I think this is a really important topic, so hopefully we'll all learn something. Um, So we're going to structure this episode. First we're going to talk about some definitions. For example, the difference between acute rheumatic fever and rheumatic heart disease. It's always hard to remember that one. Yeah, it can be a bit confusing. Um, Pathophysiology, the epidemiology, clinical features, the diagnostic criteria that we use for um, acute rheumatic fever, some of the investigations, treatment, and kind of the history of the disease. So groundbreaking um, land to cover there. So tell me about Marley. So Marley's a 10-year-old kid from an indigenous community who presents three weeks after pharyngitis with fever, severe migrating joint pain in her large joints, so knees, ankles, elbows and shoulders. And on examination, she's got a new diastolic murmur. So rheumatic fever, rheumatic heart disease? Mm, Good question. So do you know what the difference is, Beck? (laughs) (laughs) I feel like we're in play school. It's great. Okay. Uh, Not really. I get a bit confused. So rheumatic heart disease has heart in it. So imagine that's something to do with the murmur that we're hearing in this girl. So does that mean that she's got both? It sounds a bit acute as well. Yeah. So acute rheumatic fever is an acute autoimmune reaction two to four weeks after a um, group A strep pharyngitis. Which it sounds like she had, probably. Yeah. Which has manifestations including valvular disease and a migrating polyarthritis. We'll talk more about it later, but it's basically it's highly prevalent in the developing world, and it's treated with high dose aspirin and ongoing penicillin prophylaxis. Right, and then rheumatic heart disease just means heart involvement of rheumatic fever. So that can be acute or that can be a chronic. Um, heart right, disease. and do they do they happen at the same time? So yeah, when you get your first an episode of acute rheumatic fever, you can present with a carditis, so an inflammation of part of the heart. Okay, but then, not necessarily so, is that right? So you can you can get your acute rheumatic fever, but then the heart disease can be something that comes later. Yeah, it can also be something that comes later. Yep. Right, okay. And then the you said that Marley had a sore throat a few weeks ago and that this is all related. So what's the, I always forget this, what's the actual, what's the bug, what's the causative organism that leads to um, acute rheumatic fever? So group A strep, so um, which is also known as streptococcus pyogenes, they're the same thing, and that's always the cause of acute rheumatic fever. So usually that's a pharyngitis or tonsillitis, but it can rarely be post-skin infections in some populations. And as we'll see later, one of the criteria for the diagnosis of acute rheumatic fever is lab evidence of um, a previous group A streptococcus infection. Right. So you can't just look at it and be like, it smells like group A strep. You've got to actually know. Yeah. Um, So just to revise, so group A strep is a gram-positive cocci and it's in chains or pairs. And if they were in clusters, what bacteria would you be thinking of, Beck? Uh, That sounds a bit like Staph aureus. Yeah. So think... Um, uh, um, strep pyogenes, chains or pairs versus Staph aureus is the one in the clusters. Both and then you'll never, you'll never forget it. Yeah, never. <laughs> never again. Um, okay, good. And, and just a bit of a reminder about what tonsillitis from group A strep looks like clinically compared to, say, someone who's got an influenza-like illness or some other kind of upper respiratory virus. Yeah, so this, the... I think this is really important, like particularly in terms of um, 
like antibiotic stewardship. And it's an important thing to remember for GP land. So if someone presents with a fever, tonsillar, exudate, lymphadenopathy, pain and malaise, that they're the classical features of an acute streptococcal pharyngitis or tonsillitis. And there should be no cough and probably also no coryza. So mm. no cough is another positive criteria. They've got some score called the Centaur score, which you can use to to diagnose strep pharyngitis. But basically just remember it's the tonsils and hopefully not a cough. What's a centaur again? That's like the half man, half horse. Yeah, yeah. But this is spelled C-E-N-T-O-R. I'm so I'm assuming it's not Kentor. Okay, I think that's probably enough on the strep throat side of things. Let's just talk a bit about how all of this works. How does a sore throat lead to acute um, rheumatic fever? What's the pathophysiology? So it's not well understood, which I'm always happy when I hear because I feel like I can be a bit slightly lazier that's than normal. That's my favorite. Mechanism, <laughs> mechanism is unclear yep. to me and presumably some others. But the key word to listen for is molecular mimicry. So basically... Um, acute rheumatic fever is an autoimmune reaction a few weeks after a group A strep infection and the body makes antibodies against the group A strep, some of the proteins in it, and those antibodies then start to attack normal cells in the body. So they attack cells in the joints, um, causing the arthritis. They also attack cells in the basal ganglia, which causes the um, Sydenham's chorea that we'll talk about. And right, because the basal ganglia, that's the bit that's involved in Huntington's career as well. Yeah, yeah. So it's really nice, I think, with, with stuff like this, when everything kind of comes together a little bit. Yep. And carditis, because it attacks some of the proteins in um, the heart. In the heart, heart, yeah. carditis. It's coming carditis. together again. Yeah. This is great. This is tough stuff. Okay. Hard to get your head around. So... There's acute and then chronic manifestations in the heart. What causes the acute manifestations? So acutely, there's inflammation and small thrombi form along the lines of the valves. But in chronic disease, you get a process of thickening and fibrosis of the valve, resulting in stenosis or sometimes also regurgitation. And um, so I guess just remember that sometimes you'll get an acute carditis that'll resolve. And sometimes the carditis will become chronic and you'll have a permanent valve problem mm. so okay. beck do you know what the four valves affected are and the order yes um matope, so mitral and then aortic tricuspid and pulmonary so this isn't the aorta this isn't the aorta this isn't the order is what i meant to say that one person gets their valves <laughs> progressively affected it's the frequency of yeah the so this is the frequency is that right yeah but think i mean mitral is the most common yeah um but then aortic and rarely tricuspid and pulmonary. Yeah, so it kind of spells out mate, but mat per. Mat per, yeah. There you go, you heard it here first. All right, so that is pathophysiology. And now we're going to talk a little bit a little bit about epidemiology. And really we're here with a resident expert because Scott has just come back from Fiji where he saw in the flesh that this first dot point that I have in front of me is true. Yeah, so very common in developing world but uncommon in the first world. There you go. There's your two-month expert speaking. So and the, the dot point that I was talking about, which I've lied and is actually the second dot point in front of us, is I've seen you've written here that 25 to 50% of all cardiac ward admissions in the world are because of this, which I find amazing. Mm, so just remember, though, that's rheumatic heart disease and rheumatic fever as well. Together, yeah. right. 
So not just acute rheumatic fever. So there's approximately 470,000 new cases of rheumatic fever diagnosed each year and over 230,000 deaths due to rheumatic heart disease. So most cases occur in low and middle income countries and among indigenous groups. Mm, And that's really sad in Australia that um, I think the statistic is about 70 times, you're 70 times more likely to get rheumatic fever if you're indigenous, an indigenous Australian compared with a non-indigenous Australian. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. So in Australia, 98% of all cases are in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and about um, 2% of Northern Territory Aboriginal people have rheumatic heart disease. Mm. Yeah, so it's pretty sad. Yeah. yeah. So, so I guess that's the sort of the racial lines, I guess, which is a combination of lots of different things, which we'll talk about in a minute. But what about age? What age group does it affect? Yeah, so the peak age is um, 6 to 20 years old um, for the first attack of acute rheumatic fever. And, but the peak prevalence of rheumatic heart disease is um, teens into the early 20s. Right. So there's a bit of a lag there. Yeah. Um, The other important point is that there's no real strong sex predilection. However, um, boys and girls um, tend to have different manifestations. So um, chorea is more common in girls and mitral stenosis and uh, aortic stenosis is more common in boys. Which is so interesting. Do you know, I'm going to put you on the spot here. is Is it unknown as to why? As far as I know, yeah. Yeah, there (laughs) you go. Mechanisms are unclear. So there's also been an association shown between certain class 2 HLA antigens. Um, However, there hasn't um, been shown to be like variants between different populations, only among individuals. And some studies have estimated that um, 3 to 6% of the population are susceptible. Right. So, So just to clarify there... There's no variance of susceptibility between populations, but there's a quite a striking variance in the actual incidence between populations. Yeah, so there's no no variance of these important genetic um, differences, mm. which give susceptibility. Right. That's right. Yeah. Okay. So, so what are the main causes of these differences in incidence or susceptibility in different groups? Yeah. So obviously, the information is pretty shocking. How kind of unequally distributed it is and it's thought that most of this difference is due to improved living conditions in the developed world right right which have less overcrowding better hygiene and then with consequent reduction in transmission of the group a strep okay other factors are thought to be access and usage of antibiotics Mm. and um, also differing virulence of strep strains in different parts of the world some more rheumatogenic with differing levels of strep M protein and other things. And among individuals, as we mentioned, there's some different underlying susceptibility. Yeah, so I had a patient who I looked after once when I was working in the infectious diseases ward who was a really interesting case that I think illustrates this reasonably well. He was a white, non-Indigenous Australian male who was in his 20s and he'd grown up in an Indigenous community where he's... Uh, one of his parents was working as a doctor. So he he had good living conditions, um, as did no doubt many of the Indigenous people in the community there. He also had unlimited access and usage of antibiotics. But probably the thing that was different there that made him more at risk than the other six-year-olds who were living in Melbourne or Sydney was that 
perhaps there was a higher virulence of the strep strains in this indigenous community. Yeah. It's just speculation, but I think it's just interesting that that somebody who, it shows that it's not like a genetic susceptibility in Indigenous people. There's other factors happening as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, just another thing about access and usage of antibiotics, which you said was the second cause there. So if we go again, number one was the living conditions. Number two was antibiotics. Number three was the um, virulence of the streptococcal strains. And number four was underlying individual susceptibility. When I was in Fiji, I remember seeing a poster up on the wall in a GP clinic that said, Something that just seemed completely the opposite to what we have in Australia. It said, um, have you got a sore throat? Tell your doctor you need antibiotics. Yeah. It's almost the reverse, isn't it? It's completely the opposite. And the thing is, in Australia, in non-Indigenous Australia, you don't give antibiotics for a sore throat. And the poster up on the wall in an Australian GP clinic says, have a sore throat? Tell your doctor you won't need any antibiotics. And that just really reflects the, the incidence in different, um, in different communities. Yeah, it's really true. It's really important to keep that in mind if you think about giving antibiotics. Definitely. Cool. Okay. So just to recap what we've done so far, another med conversations recap break. We're trying to make it happen. Yeah. And um, what's the difference between acute rheumatic fever and rheumatic heart disease? So acute rheumatic fever is a syndrome with some criteria we'll talk about, but classically with a fever, migrating polyarthritis, carditis, and sometimes a chorea and a rash. And rheumatic heart disease just means the heart involvement, which can be acute with rheumatic fever or can be chronic or permanent. So, Beck, do you remember which bug and what kind of bug it is that causes this disease? Uh, it's a bacteria. Uh, no, it's group, group A streptococcus, which is streptococcus pyogenes. What's it look like on a gram stain? So it doesn't look like Staph aureus. It's not in a cluster. So it's usually in um, diplococci or like a um, straight line. Yeah, so pairs or chains, exactly. Pairs or chains. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I'm just trying to look really smart. Yeah. Okay, um, Scott, can you explain the pathophysiology of acute rheumatic fever in just one alliterative term? Um. (laughs) We didn't didn't prep this. I was going for molecular mimicry. Oh, okay, yeah. Molecular mimicry. Alliterative distracted me a bit. Okay, cool. So, and who gets uh, acute rheumatic fever there? I think next time we need to rehearse this. Sorry, guys. Um, Who gets it? Well, mostly it's young people, most common in children. And in Australia, it's overwhelmingly Indigenous people who tend to get uh, acute rheumatic fever and subsequently rheumatic heart disease. Great. Fun break. Yeah, hopefully that's over. Let's keep going. So pushing on, have you got any information for us about the clinical presentation? I do. I've got a lot of information. So let's talk firstly in depth about some of the classic features. There's five of acute rheumatic fever, and then we'll talk about the diagnostic criteria afterwards. Okay, sounds good. And I have to say, there's a really great graph that we have the privilege of seeing with our visual medium in front of us, and I'll make sure that we put it up on the site so you can have a look at it as well. Yeah, so... This explains all of this. Yeah, because you've got these different symptoms kind of coming on at different times um, when they're all present, which it's got kind of a variable presentation. You can get some of the different criteria and not other ones. Okay, So, so let's shoot through. So there's... Five kind of main things, arthritis, carditis, sydenham chorea, 
erythema marginatum and subcutaneous nodules. Tell me about the arthritis. Yeah, so it's usually a migratory polyarthritis. And um, it's in the bigger joints. So classically the knees, the hips, the elbows, shoulders, and sometimes the wrists or the hands and feet. And it's called a migrating polyarthritis because you'll get um, kind of arthritis in different joints. So you might start often with the lower limb joints being affected. So you might get one of your knees affected. And then a couple of days later, you might get another knee or an elbow affected. And there'll be overlapping kind of arthritis in that joint. But then it will might disappear in one joint and appear in another joint. And that's why it's called migrating. Love it. Sounds good. And the As other opposed in- to something like gout or... Yeah, definitely. And the other important thing here, which we'll talk about more when we come to the criteria, but it's a um, there can be an arthritis, which when there's objective signs of joint inflammation, like swelling and redness and things, or it can just be an arthralgia. It's one of the minor criteria. Mm, yeah, and that's a really important distinction to make, as you said. So arthralgia is just pain. Arthritis is inflammation. Yeah. Um, and it can have objective arthritis and limitation of movement. And the other really key thing is it should, this arthritis is the symptom that subsides really quickly when you start treating with NSAIDs. So if it doesn't subside quickly, then you've got to reconsider the diagnosis. Mm, okay, that's good to know. Tell me about the carditis. So it can be clinical or subclinical, presenting with a heart failure or just a murmur on examination or something on an echo. Um, 50 to 70% of the patients have a carditis. Um, it's one of the earliest symptoms. And um, as we've already talked about, there's often a valvulitis. Um, on the first attack of acute rheumatic fever, about up to 50% have a carditis. But it's all, you can also have chronic and progressive damage to the heart valves. And this is the main cause of mortality mm. in rheumatic heart disease. This is what we worry about, the carditis. Mm, okay. Um, and I think, I think also... Given that I've started studying for the physician's exams, if you're on that train, these are the kind of things that they like asking questions about. What's the main thing that kills you out of this really complex condition? So I think that's a good one to yeah, one to know. So like carditis is the main cause of death in rheumatic fever. Yeah, it's like why do we care about rheumatic fever? Hmm. Because of the carditis, I guess. Yeah. Okay. Syndrome Korea. Yeah. So this is kind of an interesting one. So Korea are these different syndromes where there's funny dysregulated movements. And Sydenham's chorea is a typical one for acute rheumatic fever. So it's in 10 to 30%, um, particularly in girls. And this, this symptom often comes on a bit later after the um, group A strep infection, so sometimes one to eight months. And there's abrupt involuntary non-rhythmic movements, including body and facial expressions, and it looks a bit like a kid who can't sit still and is kind of writhing around from the vi- from the videos. Sounds a bit like me when I'm trying to dance, but I'm still feeling a little bit uncomfortable about it. Yeah. And then you open your mouth and your tongue looks like a bag of worms. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Classic Saturday night. Yeah. Um, and there can also be emotional dysregulation, mm. kind of sudden changes and jerky speech. Um, it's... This syndrome is more pronounced with movements and disappears when they're sleeping. And I think that that's really interesting because I guess that differentiates it from a few different things. I'm not sure what else you you would think is going on, but um, it certainly differentiates it from something like a status epilepticus kind of picture. So it goes away during sleep. Yeah, definitely. Um, So 
the other interesting sign might impress some old school consultants here. It's called the milkmaid sign. I love this one. Yeah. So the examiner holds out their two fingers and the patient holds, like grasps the examiner's fingers. And if the patient's got syndrome's career, often they'll kind of grasp and release the examiner's fingers. They so, are milking the doctor's fingers. Yeah, milking your fingers. Yeah, it's called the milkmaid sign. So it's a, it's a good one for exams, Beck. Note it down in a little book. Noted. All right, what about erythema marginatum? So the rash is a red-pink macular papular rash, as everything seems to be, and it's got lots of different words they use for it. It's called a disappearing rash, an annular rash. Annular meaning rings? Annular meaning rings in Latin, yes. Or a centrifugally expanding rash. Oh, I like that one. But I feel like there's too many words being thrown around. The word to remember is it's called marginatum. So it's a rash which the margins are kind of red and the expanding center is clear. So it starts off red and then the rash kind of expands out with raised red parts and it's left with a white bit in the middle. So mm. it's called marginatum because the margins are red. Are red, like the prominent part of the rash. Yeah. Cool. And and that sticks around for a while, doesn't it? Um, so it can come and go. I guess that's why they call it the disappearing rash. But yeah, it can last for a while. Yeah. So it's even one after of these treatment. things, it sticks around even after treatment, even yeah. up to months. Yeah. And there's another cutaneous manifestation, or subcutaneous rather. Yeah. So subcutaneous nodules. So these are firm, painless lesions ranging from a few millimeters up to two centimeters in size. They're often on bony prom- prominences and they can last for one to four weeks. Right. And then a few other clinical features that you're going to notice anyway are fever. Um, and. It's not so much a clinical feature, but you're going to do you're going to do some investigations, which we'll talk about later, I guess. Yeah. So your classic clinical presentation is sort of like Marley's, which we talked about earlier. So that was that ten year old girl who's from an indigenous community. She had pharyngitis. Three weeks later, she got fever. She had these migrating joint pains and a diastolic murmur. So three weeks post the sore throat, she had these things. Is that the classic? Duration of the latent period? Yeah, so the latent period's classically 18 days. Right, okay. So it's rarely not between one and five weeks. Mm-hmm. Okay, and I guess an interesting thing here to remember is that a lot of the time people don't remember having had pharyngitis. Yeah, so um, only 70% apparently remember it. And kids are even less likely to remember it. So in terms of which of these features manifest first... What's the kind of order of these symptoms coming about? Yeah, so classically the first thing to appear would be the um, polyarthritis. Mm-hmm. The carditis and the rash can also appear quite early. But the chorea and the subcutaneous nodules usually appear a bit later, up to, up to you know a month or two kind of mm. after initial presentation. So presumably this is just without treatment. This is the natural history without any treatment. Yeah. And we can put a stop to it before it happens. Yeah. Okay, and then without treatment, if you were, say, Marley didn't get brought in to see you, um, how long would she be unwell for? Usually resolves within about 12 weeks. Right, but then with everything it leaves behind. Mm. I guess that's the issue. Okay, so clinching the diagnosis. We've talked about what the clinical features are, but there's a key white male's name that you need to remember that's going to help us give some diagnostic criteria. Yeah, it's a good one. It's a classic. Jones. Jones. All right. 
So I think the first thing to know about Jones criteria is before you get into all of the criteria, you need to also have laboratory evidence of a previous strep A infection. And then on top of that, you need to meet certain numbers of major and minor criteria. And I think here I'm aware that, especially hearing it in a podcast kind of medium, you've got to forget the numbers of these, but you need two major criteria or one major and two minor or three minor if it's for recurrence. So for a first episode, you need two major or one major and two minor. But if that person's already had um, acute rheumatic fever... And three minor is enough. Yeah. Okay, so what are the major criteria? So we've already talked about them. So carditis, it's clinical or subclinical on an echo. Polyarthritis, so remember that's on examination. So there's objective features of arthritis, not just pain. Korea. Correct. I don't know why I decided I wanted to say that one. Yeah, it's a good one. <laughs> um, erythema marginatum and subcutaneous nodules. So, Beck, what are the minor criteria? Okay, so I'm just absorbing the major criteria first. All right, that's absorbed. Minor criteria are polyarthralgia, not just arthritis, but pain. Fever greater than 38.5 degrees. And remember this number. It's not one of those ones I'm just putting out there for you to forget. 38.5 degrees. ESR greater than 60 and or CRP greater than 3, which is basically any human who's breathing has a CRP greater than 3, but there you go, or prolonged PR interval, unless they've already ticked the box for carditis in the major criterion. Yeah, so those criteria we just talked about are in a low incidence population, but there's also a slightly different set for a high incidence population. So it's actually not very different. But the main differences are um, polyarthralgia, so just pain instead of objective um, signs of arthritis is sufficient as a major criteria. Mm. And as a minor criteria, you can just have a monoarthralgia, so pain in one joint or a fever over just 38. Not 38.5, like yeah. in those low-risk areas. Mm. Also, the, um, the threshold for ESR has gone from 60 to 30. Yeah, so I think that the main things to remember here are that the major criteria, those ones we talked about, carditis, arthritis, chorea, erythema, marginatum, and subcutaneous nodules. And I think if you remember that, unless you're working in a tropical area, that's probably going to be hold you in pretty good stead. Yeah. It's a lot of information to take in. Okay, so we said that in addition to meeting all those criteria, you needed lab evidence of strep infection. What shape does this take? So according to the American Heart Association, any one of the following. So I guess it depends on what your hospital chooses to test. But um, the three main things are elevated or rising streptococcal antibody titer. So in Australia, we tend to use ASO or ASOT, as it's sometimes called. But that you'll get a titer, but those baseline titers can vary with age and population. So um, a rise in titer is better than a single titer result. So it's good to repeat it after a couple of weeks. Okay. And uh, you said there are a few different ones. What are the other two? Yes, the other two are a positive throat culture for group A um, streptococci. And the third one is a positive rapid group A streptococcal carbohydrate antigen test. Um, I don't think I've seen much of these around, but apparently they've got a 90 to 100% specificity and a 70 to 90%, 90% sensitivity. So probably an emerging good test Baby to use. good. Mm. All right, cool. Okay, I think it's time for another MedConversations recap break. 
So we've already talked at length about the difference between acute rheumatic fever and rheumatic heart disease, and we know that it's streptopyogenes, and it's because of molecular mimicry, and it's sort of an immune complex disease. Who um, Can you tell me again what the latency period is between the sore throat or the uh, pharyngitis and acute rheumatic fever? Yeah, so 18 days between one to five weeks. And I think we've harped on long enough about the major and minor criteria, but what are the first clinical manifestations? What comes out first? So classically, first is the arthritis, and the carditis and the rash are also the earlier major manifestations. Okay, cool. So if we go back again to Mali, when you auscultated, you could hear a diastolic murmur. Tell me a little bit more about that. So there's a loud S1, opening snap, loud P2. It's a low-pitched rumbling murmur, louder on expiration. Sweet. So it sounds a bit like mitral stenosis. Yep. And then next step is obviously to confirm this. So you'd probably get an echo. Yep. So just remember, mitral stenosis is the most common, but you can also get a mitral regurge, an aortic stenosis, aortic regurge, or most valve problems as well. Mm. Okay, cool. Um, other investigations you might do. We've already done some blood tests. We've looked at the echo. Would you do a joint aspirate? Does that add a lot? So you could, um, but usually um, it'll just show a sterile, uh, mildly inflammatory fluid. Um, you can also do radiology, but again, usually it won't show much. You might be able to see a bit of an effusion. Mm, okay. And I guess the, the money here is in treatment. What are we, what are we going to do to make Mali better? So there's three main principles of treatment. So first, symptomatic relief. Um, secondly, eradication of the strep infection. And thirdly, prophylaxis to prevent further episodes. Okay, and these are all in the individual, but obviously this is a really significant public health problem. So there's also bigger bigger fish, fish to fry in terms of population management. And Yeah, so ideally we'd just totally reorganise kind of global society and make sure there's no poverty and overcrowding and things. So Yeah, so I think Scott's going to specialise in that a bit later on and, and I think it'll be fine in the future. Bit of a side project, yeah. Okay, so if we go into each of those in detail, the first one is acute symptomatic management. What do you do? So obviously you admit them, work, um, work them up and all of the investigations we've talked about. Mm, I think that's not that obvious. I think it's, a, it's definitely worthy to say you, you need admission for this. Yeah, definitely. Um, and so the really key treatment is high-dose aspirin. And it's 90 to 130 milligrams per kilograms per day. Um, for two to six weeks. So so take that, grandma's box of aspirin, have all of it, and then have it again at lunchtime. Pretty much. So for example, for a 40-kilogram 40, 40 kid, that's 900 milligrams of aspirin, six hourly. It's 36 tablets a day, which mm. is quite a lot But you're not taking the low-dose aspirin tablets, so... That's true. Yeah. Anyway, sorry, we, <laughs> we, we digress. Okay, yeah. so, so high-dose aspirin. What if they've got carditis? So um, if they've got um, carditis, particularly if it's severe, you can look at corticosteroids and sometimes they need valvular surgery. But the really important thing here is that if they've got carditis, they should have four weeks of bed rest. Um, And that helps avoiding heart stress. And it can also help if they've got arthritis to avoid um, avoid joint injury. And what if they've got heart failure? So it's often treated with digoxin, diuretics, obviously things like oxygen and vasodilators as well. So pretty, pretty similar to your run-of-the-mill heart failure, except digoxin is not something I usually think of first line in elderly people with heart failure. So that, I found that really interesting. What about chorea? So you can try carbamazepine and valproate. 
and avoiding stress. But usually it resolves within about six months. Okay. Easy. So... <coughs> he sounds important, doesn't he? You know, you know you're in good hands. I don't know if you, I don't know if you can hear the beard stroking happening while we're talking as well. Are you going to leave that in? Okay. Yeah, I'm going to leave right. it in. All right. Um, okay, so antibiotics. We've said the the main goal is to eradicate streptococcal organisms. How do you do it? So normally we like to give a single IM injection of benzathine penicillin. So not benzyl penicillin, benzathine. And because that's got much better compliance. Um, the other alternative is oral phenoxymethyl penicillin, also known as penicillin V. And that's 500 milligrams BD orally for 10 days. But who's going to do that? So you just do the one shot once and then it's done. Yeah. And, and then that's it? No more penicillin? Yeah, well, if, if, just, if they've got an allergy, you can look at giving them cephalosporins or erythromycin. So just remember that um, acute penicillin actually won't affect the course of the current attack. It doesn't, it's been shown not to alter the course, frequency, or severity of the cardiac involvement. Also note that there has been some resistance shown um, among group A strep to penicillin as well. Right, so it's a treatment that doesn't actually treat the condition and sometimes it doesn't work at all. I think we're winning here. Yeah, but I mean, aspirin is the key part of the treatment. Yeah, yeah, okay. And, and that's not all. Um, you give the one shot of the benzathine penicillin and that's... That's all you give acutely, but then you need to keep going, right? There's secondary prophylaxis that sounds like it's really important. Mm, So this is probably the most important part of management, Um, particularly because acute rheumatic fever um, often recurs. So, and people with acute rheumatic fever are at high damage of, um, (laughs) are at high risk of cardiac damage. Mm. Um, So... In the, particularly in the first one to five years, but up to 10 years, and also up until they get out of the age risk range. So secondary prophylaxis with monthly benzathine penicillin injections has been shown to be effective in reducing recurrence of acute rheumatic fever and also worsening of rheumatic heart disease. So it's basically the only effective population um, control mechanism. So they found that trying to just decolonize people with strep in the community didn't seem to work. So in countries like Fiji... You'll see a lot of people just getting monthly benzathine injections for years and years. Mm, mm, okay, that's really interesting. And in terms of the course of disease in general, you mentioned that you can get recurrent episodes of acute rheumatic fever. When do they sort of occur? What's the time frame there? Yeah, so um, as I said, it's usually in the first five years, but up to 10 and particularly up to 18 years old. Um, so the prophylaxis guidelines are based around that. So usually it's kind of five to 10 years post last known attack or up to the age of 18 but it can be indefinitely if there's um already um rheumatic heart disease so permanent cardiac involvement Mm. and from one attack about 25 percent of those with carditis will develop permanent rheumatic heart disease but the pre-prevalence of that heart disease is in early adulthood like teens and 20s as opposed to kids okay what happened to marley so they did an echo on Marley, which showed she had martial stenosis. Nailed it. Yeah. And what treatment did they give her back or what should they have given her? So she has carditis, so she should get four weeks of bed rest, really high dose aspirin, and I am benzathine penicillin once initially. Yeah. How long did it take before her joint pain resolved? Well, it says here 24 hours. So this is the one we were saying is really responsive to NSAIDs. 
Mm. And then she went home a couple of days later. And what happened in the community? So the good follow-up services gave her monthly injections of benzathine penicillin for 10 years. And then what did she do, Beck? She bought a nice house in the suburbs and then came back to your hospital service with endocarditis 30 years later. Mm, I like that how that was in the same sentence. Some good news and some bad news. That's how we liked it. It's called sandwiching technique. Yeah, very effective. All right. That is, I think, everything. So we might do a little bit of a summary of the whole deal and then we'll say goodnight. Yeah. Or so, good morning, whatever time you're listening. <laughs> yep. So, um, again, which bacteria? Strep pyogenes. And which population groups are at risk of acute rheumatic fever? Young people, children, and in Australia, particularly indigenous children. And if you're a GP, how do you differentiate strep pharyngitis from a viral pharyngitis? So it's mostly differentiated in what it does not have. There's no cough and no coryza. Now that I've had the easy questions, tell me, Scott, what are the five major criteria and four minor criteria? To major criteria? Jones criteria, that is. Yep. Revised Jones criteria. So carditis, arthritis, chorea, erythema marginatum, and subcutaneous nodules. And the minor criteria are polyarthralgia, fever over 38.5, ESR over 60, or CRP over 3, and prolonged PR interval, unless you've already used carditis. So, Beck, which valves are most commonly involved? Uh, this is the one that sounded like mate, but was matper. So mitral, aortic, the one that starts with T, tricuspid, and pulmonary in that order. Yep, and obviously mitral being the most common. Mitral, 100% the most common. Yep, so someone comes in with acute rheumatic fever, how do you treat them? Give them a um, shot of IM benzathine penicillin, and then how would I follow up? So, Oh, hang on, I didn't give the rest of the treatment. Yeah, probably. So, <laughs> let's give them some aspirin. Uh, if they've got carditis, they need four weeks of bed rest and they may need some steroids. They might need some surgery. If they've got chorea, then you can use some anti-epileptics like carbamazepine or valproate and avoidance of stress. If they have heart failure, digoxin and otherwise just your usual heart failure management. And then what? They get better. What's the follow-up treatment? Yeah, so the important thing is the recurrence and the progression of the rheumatic heart disease. So it's really important that they get Three to four weekly month, um, three to four weekly monthly benzathine penicillin injections. There were brackets around the monthly. Yeah, I heard them. Brackets. It made yep. sense. Okay, that's great. That's really useful. Thanks, Scott. And I think uh, we can even just chuck this in here. There was a previous RACP question for anyone who's studying for their BPT exams or just wants to sound smug that they're going to know the answer. Um, in preventing the recurrence of rheumatic fever in young patients with rheumatic heart disease, which is the most effective strategy? Is it A, early treatment of throat infection, B, vaccination against common types of streptococcus, C, secondary prophylaxis with benzathine penicillin G, D, secondary prophylaxis with amoxicillin, or E, topical treatment of impetigo in family members? Mm, So if you've been listening well to this podcast, you should be Pressing at your buzzer for secondary prophylaxis with benzathine penicillin. Correct. The answer is C. Thank you very much. Have a good day. Hit us up on our Facebook page, um, Twitter. We've been hearing a little bit from you, and I think that we'll be hearing more as you all get up to your exam time. And uh, hopefully we'll be able to release another podcast in the next few weeks. We're actually going on holidays, so there might be another month-long hiatus. But after that, we will be back. Thanks very much. Sounds great. Catch. Bye.